Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and flip over to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 36 to verse 50. And we are in the finale, the final message on our series that we've been walking through uh, entitled um, Understanding or Making Sense of Our Sexuality. And so we've walked through and covered a lot of ground the last few weeks. And so today um, we're going to take some time just to kind of wrap things up and focus in on where I want us to move forward from here. In four weeks, we cannot possibly cover all that we need to really digest and understand in terms of our sexuality. But we've covered a lot of ground. And if you haven't been able to be a part of it, it's all online through the website, or we even have a YouTube channel. If you, if you subscribe to that, then you can make sure that you can catch up to what we've been journeying through as a church. Uh, the reason we've walked through this journey is because normally we don't have honest conversations about sex in the church. We are just afraid. And again, this is not as much as the last few weeks, but again, this is about a level of a, a PG-13 message. So if you have children younger than that, um, make sure they head to their classes because you need to tell them what I'm about to say. I don't want to tell them for you. Okay, you're the primary disciple of your children. But with that understanding, as we walk through this day, remember, we have to talk about our sexuality. We have to talk about sex because the culture we live in is saturated with it, and yet sometimes in the church we remain silent because we don't know how to handle it. God throws us the football, and we fumble it instead of understanding what are we supposed to do with this thing that God has given to us. And so this morning what we're going to talk about is talking about that there actually is hope for our broken sexuality. Where we have come up short, where we have failed, where guilt and shame and confusion has entered the equation in our sexuality, there's actually hope to have our sexuality redeemed by God in such a way that God can actually make it a healthy, vibrant part of our life if we actually trust him and believe that he can do that. But just like in most areas of our life, but I think in, in the area of sexuality, one of the things that we kind of, even without saying it, we think is true is that sooner or later we will hit a dead end and there will be no hope for change. There'll be no hope for freedom. There'll be no hope for something that's healthy. There'll be no hope for anything that's good. It's just something that brings pain or confusion or frustration in terms of our sexuality. Now, I've mentioned this before. My favorite show on TV is The Amazing Race because it's a very international show. You get to see countries from all over the world, and you get to see people doing crazy, insane things in all kinds of places. It's amazing. But the normal rhythm of that show, the way it works, is every week there's a new leg of the race where they'll go to a different country, and they have to perform all these different tasks. And then when they get to the end of that leg, Phil, who's the host, We'll be standing there with someone from that nation, and it'll be this mat that has the world, and that, that's the finish line for that leg. And so teams will come in, and they have to stand on that mat, and then Phil will look at them, and he'll say, hey, your team number, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is. But then when the last team gets to the mat, and they step onto the mat, it's the worst thing you can possibly hear in the amazing race. Phil will look at them and say, okay, so-and-so, you are the last team to arrive. And then he says this, and I regret to inform you that you have been eliminated from the race. And then you see all the tears flow, and they're just overwhelmed because now it's the, kind of the end of their journey. But every so often, they insert a non-elimination leg of the race. So the last team arrives, and they stay up on the mat, and you can see it in their face. They're looking at Phil. They're just saying, please say what I want you to say. And he'll say, hey, you are the last team arrived, but this is a non-elimination leg, and you're still racing. And then there's tears again, but it's for a different reason because they're still racing. And I think sometimes when it comes to our sexuality, we do. We step on the mat, and we stand before our lives and our culture and our brokenness, and we think this is an elimination leg, and there is no hope. But what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 7, Jesus demonstrates for you and I that there is no such thing as elimination race or elimination leg when it comes to our sexuality or any point of brokenness in our life. And in Luke chapter 7, what we're going to look at is something that 
One of the things I think is true for the church and for us, because we struggle with sexuality, when we read through passages of what Jesus does when he encounters people, we don't realize, and sometimes we read out of the text, that Jesus was dealing with people who lived in broken sexuality. And the story we're about to read, this is true. But normally we don't highlight this portion of it because we don't know what to do with it. We're uncomfortable with it. Look at Luke chapter 7. Let me read verse 36 through verse 50. And then we'll talk a bit about how Jesus approaches those who are broken in their sexuality. So starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped away them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Jesus always answers questions that we're not asking or we think we're not asking. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed, uh, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any, of, uh, any water for my feet, but you, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith or your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, when we read through a story like that, when when the original those who are intended to read this and encounter this the first time, when they read this story, they knew the whole backstory of what was going on there. And there is a lot that's going on in Jesus' encounter in this, and it primarily has to do with sexuality. So let me get get the context. So Luke uses a term to describe this woman, and he says in NIV, it says that she was a sinful person or lived a sinful life. That wasn't just that she was a morally bad person. The connotation of the phrase that Luke uses actually has to do with she had a broken sexuality. There was something wrong in her, her sexuality. In other words, she had failed morally in the sexual arena. So right off the bat, he uses that. And then, because of that, there's this understanding that there was an accepted understanding of who she was in the culture to, at least she was promiscuous. At worst, she was a prostitute. That was her trade. And so when, when Luke also highlights that she brings perfume to anoint Jesus, that's part of the tools of her trade as a prostitute. So she's, she's obviously got the reputation as a sinful woman. Now she's bringing perfume to this gathering. And then she does something else. When she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears, it's another sign of her broken sexuality because in that day and age, as a female, whether if you were single or married, out of respect, you never would allow your hair to come down in public, let alone touch a man. And so she's doing all these things. And so what, what Luke is highlighting is that this is a deeply broken woman in her sexuality. 
and she's encountering Jesus. And that's why it's so important for us to look at this story because the way that Jesus responds to her is the way that Jesus responds to us in the midst of our broken sexuality. So I want to take a look at that. So four things I want to begin with of how Jesus handles our broken sexuality. Look at verse 38. The first thing that we understand is that Jesus is not afraid of our broken sexuality. He's not afraid of it. So what's happening here is this sinful woman is touching Jesus, and he's not recoiling from her. He's not pulling away from her. He's not afraid of her in any way. He's not backing away from her. He's not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe a sinful woman is touching me. He's not reacting on what our typical kind of responses would be. Jesus, why? Because Jesus is not afraid of her sin. That's why when you read through the Gospels, what's crazy is Jesus hung out with who? Sinners. The time he spent with the religious people was really awkward because he was always challenging them and they were always trying to trick him. But the people that he spent most of his time with were sinners and he never was afraid that, oh my goodness, their sinfulness is going to rub off on me. They're going to spread their disease of sin to me, so I better not associate with them. He's letting an outwardly sinful woman actually touch him. Why? Because he's not afraid of her, and he's not afraid of her brokenness, and he's not afraid of her sin. And for some of us, that is so important for us to embrace, is that God is not afraid of your brokenness. He's not afraid of your sin. He draws close in the midst of your sin. He doesn't run from you. And I don't know where we've got it, but somehow in the church over the years, we think that somehow Jesus was a cinephobe. We've heard the term homophobe, but I think we think Jesus, because he was righteous and he was pure and he walked on water and he was God in human flesh, that somehow he was untouchable and he was, he was distant from people in their brokenness and distant from their sin. If that's your belief of who Jesus is, then crowd out all other vo- voices, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then answer the question, who is Jesus? Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus was never intimidated, never afraid, ever, of somebody's brokenness. But we become that way. We think that Jesus is afraid of, of who we are. It's kind of like, anybody know those kind of people who are like germaphobes? And literally, they're like putting hand sanitizer on, and they won't even touch any like surfaces without putting a glove or on or a paper towel or something. Not, no, I would never do that in my life. I don't have that problem, maybe just a little bit. But we, what is it like? So we don't, we don't get contaminated. Jesus never worried about sinful contamination. Never. And that's why for some of us today, you need to hear the reason there's hope for your broken sexuality is because Jesus is closer than you really know that he is. He hasn't run from you. He hasn't pulled back from you. He's not afraid of you. In fact, we'll talk about it in a moment. He's not shocked by your sin, even though you think he will be. He's not. Second thing is that Jesus is aware of a broken sexuality. Some of you already know this, but some of you are like, really, he knows? He knows everything. So what's happening in this encounter in verse 39? So the, the, the Pharisees and Simon, who's invited Jesus, is convinced that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He's convinced that he, he says this. He says, listen, he says to himself, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know who's touching him right now, and he would not allow her to do that. As though Jesus was oblivious to the fact that there was a sinful woman behind him. Jesus was fully aware of that she was there, and he was fully aware of who she was. He knew that. He's fully aware of her brokenness. And that's what's so shocking is that he's fully aware of who she is, and yet he's not pulling back from her. He's not rejecting her. He's not leaving her. He's fully present with her. In fact, he's more present with her than anybody else who's gathered at this dinner. 
That's because though we sin and though we fail, Jesus never leaves us and never forsakes us. He continues to pursue us. And there's nothing that we've done, nothing that we've thought, nothing that we will ever do that somehow will surprise him. When you read through the Gospels, there's never that moment where Jesus goes, Oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. Because there's never a moment that Jesus was ever surprised by humanity's brokenness and sin. Because he was already aware of it. And that's what's crazy, is that he already knows who we are, and yet he continues to pursue us, and he continues to be present. He sees everything, and he's always working on our behalf. We had a family trip a number of years ago. Our, my extended family went up to the Bay Area, and we have some family up there, and we took a trip into, into the city. So we're hanging out in San Francisco, and we were at Pier 39, and, and there was a, a, at that time, there was a Warner Brothers store there that had all kind of cartoon characters and all kind of stuff. And so my, my nephew uh, just loved cartoons, and he also had this tendency to get lost in whatever he was doing and, like, lose sight of everything else that was going around him. And because of that, getting distracted, you know, when you're in groups of people, it's easy to kind of get separated and get lost. And so my, my brother-in-law, Larry, he, he, he told his son, my nephew, he said, listen, there's lots of people, there's lots of crowds, we're moving around, you need to stay right next to me. And the reason he said that is because he knew his son really well. And so he explained that to him, and so we got into the Warner Brothers store. We're all kind of walking around, and I'm watching my nephew Jeremy, and sure enough, I mean, he runs in the store. It's like, I mean, it's like going to Disneyland. He's just like, he's seeing everything. His eyes are huge, and so he gets stuck on one aisle, and he's looking at stuff, and, and so we're getting ready to kind of wrap up, and so as we're heading out, my, my brother-in-law is watching Jeremy. He's watching his son, and so he turns to us. He says, you guys go on ahead. He goes, because Jeremy has lost sight of everything around him. He doesn't even know we're even here. And so he goes, you guys go ahead, we'll catch up. I'm like, okay. So we leave, and literally like 20 or 30 minutes transpires before we see them next. So Larry tells us what happened. He goes, well, when you guys all walked out of the store, I stayed in there, and he goes, I never let my eyes off of Jeremy. I knew exactly where it was, but he had no idea that he was alone. He said he went from one aisle to the next aisle to the next aisle, just looking and like soaking everything in. And it took him about 10 minutes to figure out he was completely alone. And then panic sets in, and he starts searching for everybody, and, and eventually he runs out to the front of the store, and, and my brother-in-law's standing right there, and he sees his dad, and then he hugs him, and of course, wonderful lesson for him <laughs> of not getting separated, but, but as, as he's telling this, the beautiful thing in this is that my, my brother-in-law knew his son well enough, he knew his son was going to fail. He knew he was going to blow it. But he remained present in that store, knowing his son's going to blow it so that he could be there when his son realized he blew it, that he was going to stand there with open arms to embrace him. Jesus does the same thing in our sexuality. Jesus knew exactly who this woman was. He was completely aware of it. He's completely aware of our brokenness, and he remains present. So when that moment comes, when we wake up to the brokenness of our sexuality, he's still present to embrace us, just like he was for this woman. And then there's a third thing as we walk through this. The third thing that we need to understand about how Jesus handles our broken sexuality is that he understands the weight of our broken sexuality. So Jesus tells a story in verses 40 to 43 to kind of make it more clear to Simon the Pharisee, which is funny. Remember, Simon didn't ask Jesus the question. Jesus just heard the question and says, listen, let me give you a really easy example here. And he compares the debts of two people. Either, neither one, one great debt, one little debt, could not pay it off. And so he asked the question, when that lender 
forgives both debts, who's going to be more grateful? Who's going to love deeper? And obviously Simon gets that. But what Jesus was saying in the midst of that, as I think as he refers to this, obviously we know that, that Simon's brokenness in him being a Pharisee was just as bad as the woman's brokenness in her sexuality. But Jesus was using a great example to say, I understand the weight of sin and brokenness. And I understand what it takes to forgive it. And as Jesus is sharing this story, you can see that he understands the weight of this woman's brokenness in her life. Because as he's telling the story, at least for the benefit of the Pharisees, she's the one that has the huge debt to forgive. Jesus knows the weight that all of us carry in our broken sexuality. And I think sometimes Jesus knows the weight of our brokenness more than we know it ourselves. There are people in this room right now who have lived with broken sexuality and addictive behavior and promiscuity and all kinds of things that you've walked through and you've struggled in your life and you don't even know how heavy that weight is on you because you've forgotten what it was like to be free from it. You live every single day of your life being crushed by the weight of your own sin and you don't even, rem you can't even remember what life used to be like because it's become a part of who you are. Okay, here another quick little advertisement. I love The Biggest Loser as well. It's another great show. Not as good as The Amazing Race, but a pretty cool. Watching somebody go through a transformation in weight loss and then seeing what that does in their life and in their mind and in their value of themselves is profound. This last season, there was two twin brothers that came in very heavy, and they came in like 200, 250 pounds overweight, and one of the, one of the twins ended up winning the whole show. But there's a, there's a couple point, points where they kind of do these interviews, and he was talking about his experience with his kids. And this is where he would just lose. And he was talking about before all the weight got put on, he said, I used to be the dad that would just run out and play with my kids and have fun with them with no limitations, no hesitation. He said, but then over time, I started to put on more weight and more weight. And he said, my son would come in sometimes and I'd be sitting on the couch and he'd say, dad, let's, let's go out and let's play. And he'd say, son, I, I can't. I can barely get up off the couch, let alone run outside. I, I, I'll get too winded. I, I just have too much weight. And it would break his heart. And he knew he was losing out on his kid's childhood. So when he lost, I don't know, this ridiculous amount of weight, like more than 50% of his body weight, it's just insane. He loses all this weight, he wins. And now the greatest victory for him, and it, watching him talk to his son, he's like, I get to be that dad again. I get to not hang out on the couch and say I can't get up. But the moment my son runs outside, I get to run out with him. And he's sobbing, and his son's sobbing. And I thought, finally, it's the beautiful picture that Jesus wants us to understand, that Jesus understands the weight of our brokenness, and what he desires for us is to be free from it. He knew how heavy a load this woman was carrying, probably more than she even realized. And I think if you and I would understand for a moment, Jesus is so present, even at the moment of your most disgusting, guilt-driven, shame-filled moment, and he knows the weight that you carry. That's why the cross. That's why Good Friday. Because Jesus took what? The weight of our sin on him. He was what? Crushed. That's what Isaiah said. He was bruised. Why? For our sin that went on his shoulders, not on ours. So that we could be free from that weight. So that we can be the healthy people in our sexuality that he desires us to be. And then the final thing before we talk about how we walk this out. Jesus also understands our sexual brokenness because Jesus forgives us for our sexual brokenness, our broken sexuality. Megan was talking about earlier just the reality of being forgiven and how we know God is really only as big or only as forgiving as we allow him to be as much as we believe he is in our lives. And it's so true. 
It's so true. So this woman, you have to understand what's happening here. The last part of this, this passage, she comes fully broken, desperate, humble to Jesus because she knows that Jesus is the only person. Just so you know, she wasn't there for the Pharisees. She was there for one person. She was there because Jesus was there. And she knew that Jesus had power and authority over any other person she had ever seen in her life. So she got herself there. Why? Because in the, the moment of her desperation and brokenness, she knew he was the only one that could bring relief. He was the only one that could set her free. He was the only one that could forgive, us, forgive her. And because of that, she risked everything. We'll talk about what she risked in a moment. But just thinking about that desperation that she had because she wanted to experience life the way she was supposed to experience it. Not as a shameful, sinful woman living in guilt and shame and living that life where when she walks into a room, everybody knows who she is and it's not for a good reason. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 32, verses one through five. This is in a paraphrase called The Message, which I think captures the essence, I think, of what's being communicated. He's talking about his sin and being freed from it through confession and forgiveness. He says, count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate's wiped clean. Count your lucky, yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you, and you're holding nothing back from him. When I kept it all inside, he's talking about his guilt and shame and brokenness, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it out. I let it all out. I said, I will make a clean breast of my failures to God. Suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved and my sin disappeared. I think that's good news. And I think it's the struggle for us. I'm not trying to, to whoop up emotion, but, but I think the struggle for us is that we don't really believe it. We don't really believe that the weight can be lifted off of us, that we, we can actually be set free, that there can be a lightness about our life that we don't any longer carry, that we really can be forgiven, that we really can have a clean slate. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. This woman understood that. That's what drove her to that place, that this thing called shame that she had lived with so long in a moment encounter with Jesus was gone, disappeared. So how do we walk this out in our life? If those things are true about our sexuality and the way that Jesus approaches us, the way that he engages us, then how are we to respond back? And so I want to look at how this woman responded to Jesus. And this is where I think sometimes in our mindset of 2016, in our modern-day culture, we don't see the historical underlying kind of foundation of what was going on in the story because it's profound. This is huge. This is probably one of the, the most incredible encounters that Jesus had with any individual when he was on the planet. So three things that this woman did that God calls us to do. The first one is this. is in the first part of verse 38. Step out of the shadows. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Now, I've read some history on what is probably going on, and so this is a pretty good educated guess of what was going on. So when these dinners or these banquets were held, they were either held in a large dining area inside a home, or many times they were held in a courtyard where at the center was a table. And when the table was made, then the guests of honor would come in and they would all recline at the table. They wouldn't sit in chairs like we would, but they would recline so that their feet were away from the table and that their, their faces and their, their, you know, obviously being able to engage each other were toward the table. And so most likely what happened is so Jesus gets invited in, all the, in, all the special guests come in, and because the Pharisees wanted to maintain their concept that they actually cared about people, their normal banquets would go like this. All the honored guests come in first, they sit at the table, and then as a concession to the poor, 
those who were poor and broken in the, in the community were allowed to come in and they would line the walls in the shadows. And they would stand there the whole time. They could listen, but they could not be heard or seen the whole time. And then when the meal was over and they were dismissed from the table, then once the guests would leave and go somewhere else to another room, then the poor could come out of the shadows and they could make their way to the table and they could take the scraps. So this woman has shown up, which was normal custom for those who are poor, and she's hiding in the shadows like everybody else. She's back against the wall, and then she does something that you're never supposed to do. She steps away from the wall. Nobody does that. And she steps towards Jesus. This is a huge violation. And in doing that, she has stepped outside the shadows of where she's supposed to stay, and you have to understand when she did that, she knew what she was doing. It wasn't she stumbled out of the shadows into light. She stepped intentionally towards Jesus to engage him. And in doing so, she knew she was doing that because she was so desperate. She was risking everything, everything to encounter Jesus. So she steps out of the shadows into this. And for us to understand that, that means she's going to step out into the light. And now everybody in the room who knows her reputation and knows her sinful life now goes, aha, there she is. There's the woman. There's the one. There's the sinful woman. Of course, all the Pharisees sitting around the table had no sin, right? Of course they did. But they look at her that way. And for the rest of those gathered around the outskirts up against the wall, they didn't have the courage to step out. She did. She's so desperate. She so needs Jesus. Even though she knows she's going to be identified as the sinful woman, she steps into the shadows because she wasn't going to allow her fear to keep her away from Jesus. And for some of us, we're stuck. We're still living in the shadows. We're close to Jesus, but we don't dare step towards him because if we do that, we're going to step out into the light and then our fear, our greatest fears will be realized, which is everybody will know who I am now. Everybody will know my brokenness. Everyone will know my sin. Everyone will know that I'm imperfect, which, by the way, all of us are sinful. But our greatest fear is that people will actually know that, which, by the way, we don't even need someone to step in the light. We all know that, but we stay back. And I promise, and, I, and I'll keep my word, I will never do this, but I have a, a, a friend who's a pastor, and he's got more guts than I do, but, but he did something in his church that actually changed, dramatically changed the makeup of their community and the way they related to each other. So one evening in one of their services, he handed out three-by-five cards, and they all thought it was going to be anonymous. In fact, some people did leave after this, but those who stayed experienced incredible community. He said, I want you to write down your greatest sin. And so they wrote it down. And then he said, okay, and now there's tape. They were sitting around tables. There's some tape. Now I want you to tape that to your shirt. And then once they did that, he said, it's time to greet each other. So now you're going to go around the room and you're going to greet each other and you're going to introduce yourself with your greatest sin across your chest. Slightly awkward in that room for a little while, but then people began to realize as they looked around the room, there was all these moments where people went, I struggle with that too. I, I never knew that you struggled with that. And so instead of this like, oh, I can't believe that you did that, it was like, I understand you more. I know you more. I accept you more because I'm a sinner just like you. Now, there are no three-by-five cards underneath your chair, and they're not going to show up, so you don't need to worry. But what if we did do that? 
freaks us out. We may not have anybody show up for Easter next week. It's like, man, they may pull out the three-by-five cards, and then it's all over for us. But what would it be like to be in a community of people where, you know what, I could be that honest with my brokenness and my sin, and people would still love me? Hmm, sounds like something called the church and what it's supposed to be, right? This woman understood that. She came out of the shadows, faced her greatest fear. Second thing is step beyond your shame. Going on in verse 38, says she began to wet his feet with her hair and then wiped them with her uh, w- with her tears and then wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. So here's the crazy thing. This woman knows what dinner she's at and everybody who's at the dinner knows what kind of woman she's at. And so when she stepped into the light, you know what just happened. Shame became a reality for her. It was the shame of her own brokenness and she'd attached to herself. And then when she steps into the light and you're, full of, you're in a room full of religious people, guess what always happens? Shame becomes a part of the equation. Why? Because every eye in that room turned and looked at her and those who were religious looked at her with disgust. This is shameful that she would do this. Why? Because she's a sinful woman and she knew she was going to have to step out and face the shame of other people. If you've ever, in fact, this is, I don't know where it came from. Kim and I have caught ourselves with our kids. When we say, shame on you, oh, man, is that the wrong thing to say to your kids? And I'm guilty of it. Why would we want to put shame on anybody? That's the worst thing you could do for somebody. But that's what happens. Their eyes are looking at her, and they're saying, shame on you for being a same simple woman. Shame on you for stepping out of the shadows. Shame on you for interrupting our religious banquet. And she knew that was going to happen, yet she faced that shame. I think one of the greatest hurdles in the church today is that many of us live in a prison of shame that Jesus has already unlocked the door to, and we won't walk out. He's already done it. He's already given his life on the cross. He's already risen from the dead. He's alive. Sin is defeated, yet we still live in the cell. Because we bought into the lies that the enemy comes along and he whispers into our ears and he tells us things that we just believe and that becomes a part of our reality and a part of who we think we are. He says to us things like this, you're flawed. You're not good enough. You're not good enough for God to really do something in your life. There are other people that are far better than you and no matter how hard you try, you're never going to be good enough and so why even try? Just give it up. And so we listen to that, and we let it settle in. And what does it do? It just paralyzes us. It just keeps us right where we're at, stuck in this prison of shame because we actually believe it. Or we listen to another lie where he comes along and he says, you are worthless. You're worthless. Look at what, what a failure you are and all the wrong things that you've done, and you can't actually be valuable. You're just not valuable enough for God to really do anything in your life, so you might as well just stay where you're at because you are not valuable. Or maybe you listen to a third lie and that, that's the enemy says to you, you're hopeless. You're not strong enough to break free from this. In fact, he'll remind you, we've been here before and you've promised before, you're gonna get free from this. You're gonna get out of this prison. You're gonna get free. Jesus is gonna forgive you and then you're right back in the cell because you fail again and that shame comes in again and the cycle repeats over and over and over again. And those are all lies because what does Jesus say? Jesus says the actually the opposite. He says, You may be flawed, but you're forgiven. And when you stand before God, you are the righteousness of Christ. No longer are you flawed. You are worthy and you are worth what? The very life of Jesus. He gave everything 
There is no higher value than, than, than anyone can place on a human being than to give their life, and Jesus gave his life for us. And the lie that we believe that somehow we're, we're just not good enough in terms of we're, we're hopeless and we can't break the cycle, and so we might as well just stay. That's the enemy again. Every addict goes through that. Every person struggling in bondage goes through that until they realize it isn't their ability that's going to set them free. It's Jesus' ability through them and the partnership and accountability and compassion of others around them to come alongside and say, hey, we're all sinners, but we're all walking towards Jesus together. That's what happens. So stepping beyond our out of the shadows, beyond our shame, and then finally this in verse 50. If we're going to actually walk towards a redeemed sexuality in our life, we're going to actually experience the healthy sexuality that God has for us, we have to be willing to trust Jesus with our sexuality. It's amazing how we can trust Jesus in all other areas sometimes when it comes to this one. We just, we just can't do it. So remember the context we're looking at. Jesus has, has encountered a, a sexually broken woman. This is what he says to her in verse 50. It says, Jesus said to the woman, after he had just said, your sins are forgiven, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is he saying to her? You risked everything to step out of the shadows and face your shame and face your brokenness because you trusted enough in me to think that actually I could change something in your life. And because of that, you're saved. And because of that, you can walk in peace. She trusted Jesus with the most difficult, painful, in fact, probably important thing in her life if she was a prostitute. Not only was it her brokenness, it was her livelihood. And she offered that to Jesus. She trusted Jesus with that and trusted him to do what only he could do. And that is something that you and I have to be willing to do and ask the question, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust him with my sexuality? Do I trust him with my sexual desire, with my sexual addiction, with my same-sex attraction, with my sex outside of marriage, with my desire for true intimacy? Do I really trust Jesus? Or am I just playing games? Do I trust Jesus enough that if I offer myself over to him, I allow him to define who I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to act, how my life's supposed to look, and what my sexuality is supposed to be defined by? Do I trust him enough? If we do, we will be amazingly surprised at the transformation that he will bring in our life. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and join me, and I'm going to conclude with something I want to share from my own life, but it's not only it has to do with sexuality, but it has to do with something even broader than that. What we're going to do in the remainder of time that we have, just so you know, and, and you can understand, I mentioned this in first service, we're going to go back into worship, and the worship we're going to experience in the next few moments is going to be longer than that we did at the beginning of the service, okay? I'm, I'm saying that to you because I'm not pointing fingers, but some people come a little bit late thinking, oh, I'm going to just kind of get in at the third or fourth song of worship. Here, Pastor John, and then I'm going to jet out the end. Nobody in this room would ever do that. But if we make the assumption that the only time you encounter and hear from Jesus is when Pastor John is teaching, then you miss out on what the Holy Spirit's doing during, during worship. Now, again, you're not going to have the walk of shame if you have to leave. I understand that. But I think we can all hang out for about an hour and a half together on a Sunday morning. We can worship Jesus. We agree we can do that. Because God wants to seal what he's doing in us. So there has to come a moment in our lives, especially in our sexuality, but this is broader than that, that we actually come to a place where we really give over ourselves to Jesus and trust him to define us. As we've done each week in this series, there's, in fact, that you can make your way there. There's teams going to be located on the sides and the backs of the auditorium just to agree in prayer with you of whatever you're navigating through in your life right now. 
It could be a point of confession that you know you need to speak something, or it could just be, I just need someone to pray for me because I'm really struggling, whatever it might be. But there has to be that moment where you get so desperate that just as this woman did, that you step beyond all your fears and your shame and the condemnation that you feel and your worry of being rejected and what people might think or what's going to happen and you're so desperate that you say, I have to offer this over to Jesus. I have to let him define things for my future. There has to be that moment. That has to be true for everybody. I don't know your journey. I don't even know if you're, if you're here and you don't know who Jesus is and someone dragged you to church today or you've been in the church your whole life or maybe you're just new to Jesus, but I know there has to be that moment where you reach, where you surrender your agenda, you surrender what you think your life's supposed to be about, and then you let God define that for you. You no longer define it. That, for me, happened 20 years, at least 20 years after I gave my life to Jesus. That happened for me while I was a senior pastor of a church where I had finally gotten, it took me that long, it took me 20 years of following Jesus to finally, finally get to the end of myself and to realize that I had defined my life, I had defined my ch the church I was pastoring, I had defined my faith, I had defined God and told him what he could and could not do in my life for 20 years until finally he brought me to my knees and realized all of what my plans were, all of what I had come up with was a complete failure. And I was left with this reality that my plans and my thoughts and my life was flawed and it was, it was hard to hear that. But I came to that moment where I realized I can no longer define what my faith's supposed to look like. I no longer get to define how God works. I no longer get to define what I think the church is supposed to be. That one's left up to Jesus. And that took me getting to a place I still remember the night that Kim and I and the kids drove to Fresno to see my parents, and I was done. I was done pastoring. I was close to being done with even knowing who God was because everything that I thought he was and what my life was supposed to be at was not unfolding. It wasn't happening. And as I'm driving, you're one of those moments you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I got to my parents' house, and I remember the kids went in another room, and for three hours, this is the only time in my life, for three hours, I stopped. I, I sobbed without stopping till there were no tears left. Just completely broken. And it finally, at that moment, I got everything out about my life and the brokenness of my thinking and my lifestyle and what I thought my life was supposed to be about. And there was this peace that came over me because I no longer had to, to strive to make it happen. I no longer had to perform before God. I no longer had to take the weight of trying to tell him what he's supposed to do in my life. I no longer had to be in charge of the church that I was pastoring because Jesus truly was the Lord of the church. And in that moment, I was so free. And since that moment... I've had to go back of moments of like, uh, you're taking control again, let go. I'm like, okay, okay, you get to define this. You're God, I'm not God. And I share that with you today because some of us can walk through our life and we can know Jesus for a lifetime, but we can never fully surrender ourselves to him. We can give parts of it. We can do the church thing. We can kind of go through the motions. We can try to be a good moral person, but we never get to the place where we realize I'm completely bankrupt and Jesus, you need to define everything for my life. I am helpless without you. And one of those areas that we have to get to is in our sexuality. He defines that. Why? Because he created us and he created it. And because of that, there's this moment as we worship, and it could be in this moment, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, but there has to be that moment where you say, okay, Jesus, you define it for me. You define my life, you define my sexuality, you define my career, you define my faith, you define my family, you define my life, you define your mission. I don't get to call the shots anymore. And then guess what? 
just like Jesus said to this woman, now go in peace. Go live the life I purposed you to live because that life is a peaceful life because you no longer have to carry the weight of your life. Jesus carries it for you. Lord Jesus, I pray in these next few moments as we give ourselves to you fully, that just as you were fully present with this woman who was, she was so desperate, you were her only hope and she came there to encounter you and you alone, that Jesus, we come to this moment and we wanna encounter you. We want you by your spirit to speak to our souls. We want you to bring out of us the things that don't belong. We want you to redefine the way that we think about our sexuality. We want you to redefine the way we look at our lives because Jesus, at the end of the day, we don't wanna be self-made people. We wanna be people who are created in the image of God. Therefore, we reflect who you are and how we think and how we live and how we express ourselves and understand ourselves even sexually, every aspect of who we are. So Jesus, come and, and let us experience this. Thank you. Just with your eyes closed, and I'm gonna say amen in a moment. We're gonna go into worship. The, the next couple songs we're gonna do may be a little bit more reflective. You may not know the words, but if you don't, that's okay. Just look at the screen, listen to the words, and let them sink into your soul as Jesus begins to speak to the deepest areas of your life. We thank you, Jesus.